Welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're talking about our journey as Christians. Now that we have this vision of what our best life could be, still here on Earth, what should we expect of ourselves as we start to live it out? For writers, we've talked about the need to continue to learn and grow in our craft, so when are we good enough to actually publish our book or move into a career as an author? What should we expect from ourselves? I'll try to answer that today from my own experiences and hopefully help you avoid some of the mistakes I've made. So let's continue our journey. So this has been a really awesome week for me. Uh, Actually, just today, before recording this episode, I finished the first chapter, the first 5,000 words of book four, and I'm really, really excited for people to read it already. Unfortunately, it's going to take probably a lot longer than I thought. This is going to be a big book. I've talked about By Ways Unseen before and how long that one took me to write. That book was 130,000 words, give or take. Now, I went off and on with writing that book and I rewrote it, or I wrote it once and then rewrote it from scratch. And I'm not going to be doing all that with book four, but 130,000 words, it's about, it's just under 400 pages, the actual text of the the story. Book four is scheduled to be 200,000 words. So it's going to be half again, roughly, as long. So it's going to be almost 600 pages by the time it's done. So I was hoping to start out writing it at a thousand words a day because that's what I was doing with book three towards the end. But as I mentioned before with that one, like I had a really, really good handle on where the book was going by that point. So it was really easy to write a thousand words a day. This one, because I'm just starting out with it and kind of feeling my way still as I go a little bit, I'm just holding myself to 500 words a day. So I'm hoping by the fall, by well, a little later than fall, by around November, to maybe be able to bump it up to a 1,000 words a day, six days a week. But even with doing that, it's now I'm scheduled to finish the first draft by the end of February. Writing a book is a time commitment, folks. <laughs> if you didn't know that before, you know it now. But I'm really excited to have the first 5,000 words done, first chapters done and in the bag. I'm going to have my wife read over it really quick because I want to make sure that I'm actually doing this well. I am drawing things out a little bit longer. I'm taking more time to kind of world build and character build. I'm not trying to dump too much on the reader at once. I did consciously, like I had written a couple paragraphs and realized I was dropping a lot of names. And so I went back already and kind of, and cut out that stuff. I was like, that information can wait. Let's try to stick with just the most important information right now. It's really, really easy when you spent, you know, a couple months world building, like I just did and plotting your book to start just throwing everything in there at once, especially as a pantser or a planter where you're just trying to, you know, just trying to put words on the page. So I caught that early, but I want her to read over it, get kind of initial reactions, make sure it's not super boring because I would really, really hate to spend 11 months writing this book, get to the end. She starts reading it and is like, I just can't stay focused on this. So hoping by having her read this first chapter now and, you know, I've told her to be brutally honest. If her mind starts wandering, if she feels bored or confused or whatever, let me know when those points are and might have to, you know, kind of readjust after that. We'll see. I think I've got it, but I want her to take a look at it. And then also finishing up the edits for book three on Saturday. And I'm going to send it out to a couple people to read because it's nice kind of you get feedback from someone who has never read the book before and parts where they they might have been confused or they catch you know where you made some errors or whatever it is kind of nice to go through and revise the whole thing and then still get a brand new fresh perspective on 
the book. I am going to have my wife read it again, that one as well. She was one of the first readers to read it. So for her, the advantage of doing that is that she can kind of look at it and see, oh, here's where you changed it. Does that work better than what was there previously or not? To a degree, it's kind of hard to say if things are you know explained more clearly because she's read the whole thing. She already knows where everything is going, but there's still some value there. And then also having some brand new people who've never read it before read it and see if it's if anything's confusing for them or if you know it's if it seems well written. So gonna go ahead and move forward with that. So hopefully get that back within a month. I'm hoping. If you're listening, I'm hoping you can get this back to me within a month. It's it's shorter. It's half the size of By Ways Unseen. So I'm writing one book that's half the size and the next book is gonna be you know one and a half times the size. So kinda it all evens out. All my books average 120 to 130,000 words a piece. While they're reading it, I'm going to be getting the back cover blurb figured out and probably contact my cover artist and get started on that. Because I don't think the, the, the big thing is that the page count, she needs to know what it is in order to know how thick to make the spine. But I don't imagine the revisions I do after this next reading are really going to end up in a major like page count difference. So yeah, those are the next steps. Really, really moving forward with this. So hopefully get started working on a cover by the end of next week. I'm hoping to sit down next week, get the blurb written out, go over that with a couple different people, see, get their reactions to it, and be able to put the whole thing together and publish it in May. So I might actually get it done earlier than I had thought, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. That's what's going on. Lots of fun stuff. As you can tell, I'm on my own journey, and we're going to talk about that today. I'm really excited about this. I, I say that about every podcast. I'm excited to bring it to you, but I am. So I am. Anyway. An interesting and excellent question I've asked myself is this. Can we be sinless in this world? Is it possible, once we become Christians and have the power of Christ living in us, to consistently and flawlessly escape every temptation? As I've pondered over this question, it has led to some fascinating and unexpected answers. So I thought I would begin to share some of these findings with you. When I asked that question of you just now, I imagine there might be various responses, but probably mostly variations on the theme, of course we can't, we're hopeless, wretched sinners, and will not be perfected until we enter heaven. And we hold tightly and sometimes joyfully to that belief whenever we consider our own lives. I wonder though how firm is that belief when we see sin in someone else's life, especially when their wrong actions affect us and our lives when their faults annoy us particularly or make our lives harder. During those times, perhaps, we might turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, reminding ourselves that Jesus himself said it this way, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Or we might turn to Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 11 and 13, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Expel the wicked person from among you. For ourselves, though, we may misquote the verse from Hebrews 12 verse 1, saying such and such act is just the sin that so easily entangles, ignoring the fact that the writer of Hebrews first says to cast it off. Well, no one is perfect, we say offhandedly. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. You might think me a hypocrite since I recently spoke at length about cussing being okay, but I bring up that last point not because of what it says specifically. Rather, it's the attitude that bothers me, 
an attitude that makes light of sin, that accepts our imperfection with no hint of remorse or desire to become perfect. It's that attitude that completely ignores verses like 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He writes to us so that we will not sin. And if we do, John makes it sound like perfection is expected and sinning is only a possibility. Such an attitude also ignores the promise of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He always provides a way out, meaning we are not helpless to carry out the temptation through to the sin. We also fail to consider Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, which reminds us that we have been crucified with Christ, and anyone who is dead is free from sin. How simple a concept. When you're lying there in your casket, you can hardly be tempted by anything on the earth anymore, can you? Verse 13 directs us to not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Not any part, not our hands, mouth, eyes, or brain. I know it seems impossible. It seems like no matter how hard we want to, we can't help ourselves sometimes. We might look at Romans again, chapter 7 this time, where Paul himself admits to being a sinner, that even though he desires to do good, he keeps doing evil. But look closely at those passages, starting in verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is, It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Hopefully some things in here stuck out to you, given the verses we had read previously. Didn't Paul just say earlier that we were dead to sin? How is it now, near the end of this passage, He says we are a prisoner of the law of sin. Hasn't Christ freed us? And if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed, aren't we? Context is king. Let's look at a few of the passages surrounding verses 15 through 24. First, notice verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. This doesn't match either, does it? How is Paul a slave to sin, but not a slave to sin? What's happening here is he's taking us back to a point when, as a Pharisee, he believed the law was God's way to salvation, not Jesus. The law, he says, was given as something that was good, but sin seized the opportunity of the law to reign in our bodies, saying that once we knew what was right and wrong, only then could we be tempted to do what was wrong. If we don't know something is wrong, where is the temptation? We act out of innocence. But as soon as we learn such an act or attitude is wrong, Only then can we be tempted by it and try to resist. But with only the law and no grace, we will continue to find ourselves doing what we don't want to, because the law itself has no power to help you do right. So then Paul asks, quite understandably, who will save us from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25, 
Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. But right there, he's still a slave to the law of sin in his sinful nature, in his flesh. So there, we can't help it, we're not perfect. As long as we're on earth, we'll always succumb to temptation and sin. Except, these divisions of the books of the Bible into chapters and verses happen after they were written. We can't just stop at the end of the chapter as if that closes the argument. So let's keep reading into chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And to put the proverbial nail into our fleshly coffin, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, I'm sorry, but I don't see any biblical way to any attitude of, that's just who I am, that's just always going to be a part of me. No one is perfect, thank God for his forgiveness. He does forgive you when you repent. But repentance means turning away, not just feeling kind of bad. It means rejecting an action, attitude, or thought, saying, that's not the way I know to live, and I won't live that way anymore. By accepting some sin or other as just part of who we are, we are, by definition, unrepentant. Two things I want to mention by way of encouragement. The first is pretty simple and straightforward, and it comes from Luke 17, verses 3, and especially verse 4. Jesus tells his disciples, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Verse 4, Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, if we do some quick math, most of us sleep six to eight hours a day meaning we're awake for 16 to 18. If someone sins against us seven times during that period, that's an average of about one infraction every two to two and a half hours. And Jesus doesn't say it's necessarily a new sin each time. So let's say this brother or sister of yours slanders you to their friends or coworkers and are texting or calling you every two hours saying, I did it again, now they think you're a horrible person. I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't do that and I'm not going to do it again. Imagine it's a workplace where you have mutual friends. Maybe you go to church together. Or maybe you're even hoping to get hired there. And every two hours, they call or text admitting what they did, admitting it's wrong and they shouldn't do it. They know you're actually a good person, but the conversations at work are always the negative side of people or making fun of them. And they find themselves constantly dragged into that same attitude. And they're praying about how to stop doing it and seeking the Holy Spirit. Every two hours, Jesus says you're to forgive them. Now let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus ever asks us to do anything that God is not willing to do for us? Remember, God told Abraham to sacrifice his only beloved son and then stopped him. But when God's only beloved son was heading to the altar, he rebuked Peter, called him Satan even, for suggesting that God might step in and prevent it. Sometimes I think we get more weary of repenting than God does of forgiving. I hope to strengthen you with this. God is always more than willing to forgive you, even if you commit the same sin every two hours. But he cannot do it 
If your attitude is, well, that's just the way I am, no one's perfect. We must continue to repent and search relentlessly for the way out of every temptation, which God has promised to provide us. The second thing I want to encourage you with is the idea that this may not happen overnight. Now, you may find it in yourself to surrender completely and immediately, that as soon as God says, do this or don't do that, even if it makes no sense or you don't understand it, you have the attitude of, God said it, so I'm going to obey. We all need to strive for that point, but I don't believe all of us will reach it immediately. And this isn't just because I feel this way. It's actually because of a very interesting passage from the Old Testament. Now, we know that the Israelites' promised land back in the first five books of the Bible is a representation of God's eternal kingdom, right? We can read Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where the writer quotes Psalm 95, talking about God's oath that, since the Israelites rebelled on the way to the promised land, those who rebelled would not enter his rest. The writer then goes on to liken God's resting from all his works on the seventh day of creation to the day when we too enter his rest, if we are obedient, and get to rest from all our works. That's why his rest does not come when we accept Christ as a salvation from our sins, but when we finally and fully enter God's kingdom and rest. Because until that day, we need to continue working however we can. So, if we accept that Canaan is an image of the eternal kingdom, Watch this passage from Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30, and actually repeated in Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. Exodus says this, speaking about the peoples already in the land that the Israelites were about to take over. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you, until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. That has some interesting implications, doesn't it? If we think of our mind as being inhabited by evil people, evil thoughts, or at least thoughts bent away from God, and once we accept Christ, we are on our way toward the promised land, we haven't gotten there yet, we should be, in essence, driving out those evil people. And yet God promises he won't do it all at once, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for us. A friend of mine, when I shared this with her many years ago, reminded me of this too. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. In psychology, when talking about getting rid of bad habits, Research has stressed the need to replace the bad habit with a good one. So, in every aspect, Old Testament, New Testament, and the natural world, we see this principle repeated of process. Identifying a bad habit, repenting of it, stopping it, and building a new one. This does not happen in one night or even in one year. As we continue to learn and grow, God will reveal to us new areas where our thoughts are bent away from Him. Up to that point, we were still in sin, even if in ignorance, but, as Paul preached in Acts 17, verse 30, speaking to the Athenians about the worship of false gods, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I encourage you then to have three important attitudes. First, whatever God commands, you will be obedient. This will help you greatly when he shows you a sin, whether in prayer or through the teaching of a fellow believer. Second, believe his promise that there is a way out of every temptation, every single one. You may think, but there are some sins I commit before I can even think about resisting it, before I even recognize the temptation. What am I supposed to do about that? I had one of those about a year or two ago. I found myself getting very angry in traffic, and if another driver acted particularly stupid, I let them know what I thought of them with a rude gesture. Usually, I gave that gesture almost in reflex. There was no real temptation to do it, 
Just a jerk move and a knee-jerk reaction. But I had this attitude then that I was not obligated to sin. So I began to look for a way out, not in the middle of the moment, but when I was at home or work. And I began to realize there were times when people acted stupidly and I just shook my head in amazement. And other times when people acted stupidly and I gestured. I started thinking about the times I just shook my head and thought about why sometimes I let people go and other times I didn't. Every time I let them go be stupid and just shook my head were the times I wasn't in a hurry. Now, sometimes I run late. Leaving the house early is not always an option just because life happens. But what I can do is when I get into the car and before I start driving, I pray something like this. God, this is your time. I trust you to get me to where I'm going. So I give you the next half hour or hour or whatever to arrange as you will. Simple as that. And I haven't made a rude gesture to anyone in over a year. Sometimes the way out looks like that. The third attitude is this. God is always willing to forgive you, but you must always be willing to repent, even up to seven times a day. I hope this has been encouraging and strengthening. Join me again next week. Oh, for writers. Right. I forgot. Just kidding. I do hope this has been an encouragement, not a discouragement. So let's encourage some writers out there too, especially those who have been working on their first manuscript for a very long time. I've shared my story, but just to reiterate the point. I wrote the first line of By Ways Unseen in 2002 and didn't self-publish it until 2018. I wrote that book off and on for 16 years. Now, I did pursue traditional publishing back in 2011 and 2012, and again for a little bit in 2014. I sent out queries, got form rejections every single time, and eventually stopped. Finally, I came to the conclusion that, though I personally love the book, it simply doesn't meet the needs of today's broader market. We need to remember as writers that agents and publishers need books that will sell thousands and thousands of copies. They're not perfect at picking which books and writers will do that, but we need to understand that if they were bad at it, they would be out of work, plain and simple. So I don't think of them as gatekeepers or whatever, just there to kill the dreams of most and only allow certain privileged people in. I don't even know how that would work. Anyway, that's an aside. The question before us today also comes in light of last week's talk about writing your best book. And I'll cut to the point. You will always write better tomorrow, next week, next month, next year than you do right now. Remember, I mentioned on writing my own book that just in the span of writing one chapter early on, I had improved enough that I rewrote the very next chapter. And when I finally got back to my original starting point six chapters later, it was horrendous. And so I rewrote those original first five again. Then in 2010, I rewrote the entire manuscript from scratch, only remembering the key plot points, but writing on a blank page all 130,000 words all over again. And when I release book three later this year, I'll also be releasing the fourth update to By Ways Unseen. Now, nothing in it is so radically different that the current version is obsolete. I've just added two minor details that I like. But the point is that I can go in and constantly improve what I've already written. Once, back in 2012, after some actual feedback from an agent, I considered rewriting the manuscript a third time, this time with a radically different series of events. It would tighten the plot, introduce characters much earlier, get to the climax a couple dozen thousand words sooner, and probably put the total word count closer to 80,000 than 130,000. Fortunately, before I did that, I also realized that yes, there are countless ways to tell a story. I could potentially have wildly different characters, completely different starting point, different chain of events, different themes, but a different story. Maybe that's where you are, wondering how am I supposed to know when the story is good enough? Here's how I answered it and hopefully how you can begin to answer it as well. If I had cut out the middle of By Ways Unseen back in 2012, there would have been a complete story. 
Hadrian would still have left home and ended up where he did, how he did, and with whom he did, but three important themes and another three important subplots would all have been lost. And, more importantly, the story was complete as it was. Each scene was necessary to move the characters, plot, setting, and themes forward, and they achieved those goals in the ways I wanted them to. There was no scene that I read that I felt was flat, unimportant, or not how I imagined it. I was to the point where I was tweaking a word here or there, and that's something you will do for the rest of your life. I can promise you that you will never read your book and not find a single word that you can change. And that's the key turning point. Changing your perception of, I could improve this, to, I need to improve this. As long as you read your book and objectively say, I need to improve this, and say that because the scene or chapter doesn't work to tell the story you're trying to tell, then you should definitely keep working on it. If you read it and only think, I could improve this, then it's time to stop and move on. Now, I want to stress the objectivity of your assessment. I see the attitude a lot on Twitter of writers who read what they've written the next day and think it's a dumpster fire. I don't know why, but I haven't had that feeling in a very long time. I don't think I'm necessarily that good, but I'm consistently fairly satisfied with my first drafts. I certainly improve them after feedback from early readers, but that's usually mostly because I understand what's going on, but they don't necessarily understand from what I've written. So I cut some things, usually I end up adding more. I don't know why these writers think that what they've written is horrible. I haven't read it, maybe it is that bad. Maybe they're just trying to get attention. Or maybe they do their true writing during revision. That is very common, and a common bit of encouragement. Just get your first draft on paper, because you can't revise a blank page. Some writers do well by working through scenes or plot points with a friend before they sit down and write. Other writers can't let anyone see a single word until they themselves are happy with it. You need to find what works for you. But let me strongly encourage you to find what works. Seek and find, just like you need to seek and find the way out of temptation. By Ways Unseen took me 16 years to release, finally self-publishing it in July of 2018. The First to Forgive took me about six years. I think I had Katie as the main character, which was the final step before really starting on writing what became the first full draft, in 2012 or 13. But that one too I set aside for a time because life got busy. And I published it in October of 2019. Book 3 I began in October 2017, and I'm getting set to publish it probably late May, early June as I've said, so about two and a half years start to finish. Book four I just started last week, and my goal is to release it mid to late next year. As I said, it's going to be a big one over three times longer than book three, and the first draft isn't even scheduled to be ready until the end of February, unless I really surprise myself with my word count. But still, a year and a half from first sentence to publication, hopefully. We'll find out next year. That's not a bad timeline, but I couldn't achieve it unless I committed to recognizing when the story was done being told. Sure, it could be different, it could even be better, and it probably won't be the best book I've ever written, as long as I keep writing. But it will be complete, readable, and enjoyable, so long as my early readers don't lie to me. And that's enough. Work to make it enough for you, too. It may not happen in a year, but the point is to keep pressing on toward the goal, and never be afraid or grow weary of repenting from habits that hold you back from being the best God has made you to be. Okay, now we're actually done. Thank you so much for joining me and for sticking around. I'll be back again next week with a continued look at what our journey as Christians and writers may look like, with encouragement to keep trying even if your way keeps seeming to be blocked. It'll be a good time and not depressing at all, I promise. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Keep writing.